Let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word, and we are grateful once again to come together and to think about Your Word. And we pray that You would bless our time together, that it would be time well spent for the sake of the kingdom work that You are doing in, through, and among us. Help us to be good students of Your Word for Your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we're going to talk about the prophets tonight. Uh, by way of reminder, hopefully you have a handout. Uh, the Equip Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. We are rounding the corner some with our 12-week study of the Christian story this fall. Tonight we're going to finish a four-week overview of the Old Testament, 30,000 foot, big picture. We've studied the Pentateuch, the historical books, and the wisdom literature and the poetry. Tonight we're going to talk about the prophets. Now let me go ahead and give you a preview for next week. Uh, before we spend our final weeks in the New Testament, next week we're going to talk about the intertestamental period. What happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament? I've been working on that this afternoon. Uh, excited about it, so that's just a preview uh, for next week. But as we're getting started, we have this great big whiteboard here. I think you can hear me without this microphone for just a minute. What comes to your mind when you hear the word prophecy? Future? future? What else? TV I'm sorry? TV preachers. <laughs> also applies to radio preachers. You can always tell, I'm going to tread carefully here, you can always tell what's going on in Washington, D.C. by what's happening with the sermon series on the radio and on the television when it comes to prophecy. So what else? What was that? The voice of God. Anyone else? Good stuff. Judgment. Fulfillment. Let's get one more. The Old Testament. Nobody said best-selling novels. And some novels that aren't best-selling. All, all good stuff and all perfectly reasonable things to think about when we think about prophecy. Prophets were very, very common in the ancient Near East, the world of the Jews. Pagan prophets were very common. Pagan prophets claim to speak on behalf of either divine powers or to speak on behalf of earthly rulers, and sometimes it was both because many of those pagan nations believed that their earthly rulers were divine. So prophets were common, lots of different types of prophets. Israel also had prophets, but unlike those pagan prophets, the Jewish prophets were called 
by Yahweh, and they spoke on behalf of the one true God. So we've talked about this a lot with the Old Testament, how sometimes there's things in the Old Testament Jewish world that are also in the pagan world, and when that's the case, we see the true version of it with the Jews versus the false versions of it. It's very much the case with prophets. Uh, There were false prophets in the ancient Near East, but not in... Well, there were false prophets in Israel too. But we're not talking about the false prophets tonight. Uh, We're talking about real prophecy. Now, the most common Hebrew word for prophet, we don't do this a whole lot, talk about Hebrew words, but uh, we're going to do it tonight. Uh, The word nabi, which means one called by God, uh, that word occurs over 300 times in the Old Testament. And that's not counting other times that it's talking about a prophet, but doesn't use that word. So this is a major theme throughout the Old Testament, that there are prophets, there's prophecy, and it looks different at different places in the Old Testament. Sometimes you have individuals who prophesy at key moments when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So think about Moses or Deborah or Saul or King David, all of them at various times prophesied because the Holy Spirit moved in a particular moment in the history of Israel. But others were called more to an ongoing prophetic office. And that's what we normally think about when we think about prophecy. So these included individuals like Samuel, Nathan, Elijah, Elisha, and the various men we're going to talk about tonight who have books that are tied to them. So again, you have people who... Here's the way to think about it. Sometimes people prophesy in the Old Testament, and God calls some people to be prophets. Does that make sense? It's two different ways that we see prophecy in the Old Testament. Now, the role of prophets, and we're thinking now primarily about uh, those who are called to the office, the role of prophets varied at different times in Israel's history. Before the establishment of the Jewish monarchy with King Saul, prophets spoke primarily to the people of Israel, and sometimes they also served as judges who led the people. So there was kind of a blurry line sometimes between prophet and political leader. So a couple of examples of that would be uh, Deborah and Samuel, who were both prophets and judges. Uh, So you see that kind of early on. But with the advent of the monarchy, prophets spoke primarily not to the people, but to the royal court, to the king or on one occasion later to the queen, and to those who were part of the royal circles. And here it gets a little tricky. Sometimes the prophet is like a, ro- is like a royal advisor. That's going to be the case when it's a faithful ruler. Sometimes it's going to be a religious critic. The prophet's going to be the person who's calling out the king or the queen because they're not a faithful ruler. So it's going to depend on the circumstance at different times, whether that prophet is sort of part of the king's inner circle or whether the prophet is the one who is, you know, thus saith the Lord and calling out the ruler. 
because the ruler is drifting away from the Lord. Following the respective falls of Israel and Judah, prophets again spoke primarily to the people rather than to the king or the queen. And at this time, the prophets would typically call for covenant renewal. We might today in the new covenant say rededicating your life or something like that. So calling for a covenant renewal, uh, rebuking injustice. We see that especially with the minor prophets. And promising, one of our words up here, uh, actually we have fulfillment, not promise. Uh, It's implied when we say fulfillment. Uh, Promising uh, the restoration of Israel, that God is going to do something uh, revival-like in Israel's history. And those tend to be some of the recurring themes that we see uh, during, uh, or after, I should say, uh, the periods of exile. Now, we tend to identify prophets with foretelling because they would often speak about the future. So it's not a surprise that that's the first thing that we hear. However, I'd suggest to you that even more than that, it is best to identify the prophets primarily with forthtelling more than foretelling. Because most of the prophetic utterances that we have in the Old Testament have to do more with Israel's present at the time the prophet's speaking or the words are being read than it does the future per se. Sometimes they're talking about the future, but they're always speaking to the present. Does that make sense? And even when they are predicting the future, because the prophets do predict the future, there's a reason that we think about that. Even when they are predicting the future, the prophets were always reminding Israel in the then and now of God's promises, calling them to embrace covenant faithfulness, to uh, return to their first love, the Lord who had a special relationship with them, who called them out of Egypt and made them His own. While prediction, foretelling, was not the most common form of prophecy, it was certainly important. There's a reason that we talk about it so much. When prophets predicted what I'm going to call near events accurately, the fulfillment validated to those original hearers that the prophet was speaking on behalf of God. So what we mean by that is when something was predicted that people would see in just a few years, they would remember that prophet called it. And that means God's called that prophet. Does that make sense? So sometimes we see that with the prophets. When the prophets predicted later events, especially about the coming Messiah, The fulfillment validated God's promises for first century Jews who believed in Jesus. We might think of these as uh, middle prophecies. You have the things that happen in a few years and you remember hearing the prophet say it. Then you have the things related to the coming of the Messiah. Well, no one's alive from the original prophecy, but people are reading the prophetic books and those first Jewish followers of Jesus are going, Oh my goodness, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one the prophets were talking about. And so it's validating for them that God's keeping those promises. 
Some prophets have also predicted much later events that have still not been fulfilled. And even though they have not been fulfilled, and even though honest Christians might debate some of those things and whether they've been fulfilled and what it'll look like when they are fulfilled, all Christians agree there's at least some things that haven't happened yet. We can trust that God will keep those promises as well. Even if He doesn't keep them in exactly the way that we're expecting, even if some of our interpretations might be off or there's things we don't fully understand, God's going to make good on those promises. Just like He made good on those promises about the Messiah and just like He made good on those promises that sometimes happened just a few years after they were originally given, we can trust the prophets. Any questions so far, just as we're introducing the idea of prophets and the idea of prophecy? So the question is, are there some examples of events that still have not been fulfilled? So let me give a couple of uh, vanilla examples that I don't think everybody would debate. <laughs> so one uh, vanilla example uh, is the prophets predict uh, that there's going to be a great falling away of people at the end of the age who profess that they're followers of God, but they're really not. And so sometimes this is called a great apostasy or a great straying. But uh, I've heard, uh, if y'all know who Adrian Rogers is, uh, Adrian Rogers used to say it this way, when we get near the end, uh, the bad people are going to get a lot worse and it's going to be more clear who's good. <laughs> and, uh, and we see that throughout the prophets, that they're talking about that. And again, Christians debate the details, but we know that something like that's going to happen. Uh, another kind of vanilla, amp uh, a vanilla example, uh, the prophets predict uh, that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, new Jerusalem. And uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago with uh, the very end of Isaiah's where it's most clear. So we know uh, that heaven is not our final home, uh, but a renewed earth is our final home. And several of the prophets, but especially Isaiah, uh, talk about that. So that's just a couple of things that almost all Christians would agree about without getting into the things that we know people fight about even in Sunday school classes with uh, what might still happen and what might not. Any other questions? Yes. <laughs> when, uh, things like the millennium and, and the rapture and, and even what we talked about afterwards last time, the, the land and, and how Israel fits into that. You know, those are the things that honest Christians who take their Bible very seriously aren't settled on. But there's some things we know. And uh, so I was trying to focus on the things that we know. But yeah, that's, that's what we're talking about. You know what we all are? We're all pro-millennial. We don't know what it means, but we are all for it. <laughs> Pre, post, mid, we're all pro. <laughs> Any others? Let's talk about the major and minor prophets. Some of this might sound kind of familiar because we had a summer sermon series on the minor prophets. So the prophetic writings are divided up into two groups. We're moving now away from 
the office of prophet primarily. We're talking about the writings, though they're, they're tied to each other. The major prophets include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now, they are not the major prophets because they're more important. They're the major prophets because they're bigger. They're longer. They take up more space. That's why they're the major prophets. Each of the major prophets is a standalone work. Completely different books by different people. Some overlap with themes, obviously, but talking about different things in different circumstances. Now, there is also a book that doesn't fit neatly with, uh, with any genre, and, and people kind of divide on where to put it, so you're, I'm tipping my hand. Now I'm going to put it here. The poetic book of Lamentations is often adjacent to the major prophets because it was probably written by Jeremiah and because it speaks prophetically about the fall of Jerusalem. So sometimes Lamentations is included with the poetry that we talked about last week because it's poetic. But Jeremiah probably wrote it and it's a prophecy. So we're going to include it as kind of major prophet adjacent. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a poetic prophecy, if you will. Jeremiah is just showing off. He's, he's a poetic prophet. The Minor Prophets is a collection of 12 shorter prophetic writings. Unlike the major prophets, this is really interesting, Jews have always considered the minor prophets to be a single literary unit, even though each of the books has a different author because of the common themes that run throughout the books. And if you were here this summer, this is familiar, right? Things like judgment and grace and uh, justice and repentance and drifting away from the Lord and being faithful even in the midst of trials. It, it really didn't matter which of the minor prophets we were in, certain things came up over and over again. And so our Jewish friends have always treated it like it's one book with 12 different authors. That's just what they've done. So for this reason, uh, Jews even to this day and going all the way back to at least the time of Jesus and maybe before, referred to the minor prophets as the book singular of the twelve. That's how they refer to the minor prophets. Now Christians also recognize the overall unity of the minor prophets. They're clearly related to each other. But we also tend to emphasize the uniqueness of each individual book a little bit more than our Jewish friends do. Uh, So that's why we have sermons on each of the books. And why we say that, yes, there's some common themes, but Hosea emphasizes those themes differently than Malachi emphasizes similar themes. The minor prophets include the books of Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Fine, fine names for your Jewish lads. So those are our, uh, our minor prophets. I know that that's review, but any questions? Just want to know that there's a distinction there between the majors and the minors. It's not like the major leagues and the minor leagues. By the way, you know, we called that summer series, uh, Summer in the Minors, and did the baseball theme at the beginning. 
Pastor Josh and I and perhaps some others uh, on staff have a friend in another city who uh, did a similar series a couple of years ago, Summer in the Minors, and then their staff did exactly the same thing. Every Sunday he preached in a different minor league baseball jersey. Now, that had been a lot of fun in the 8.30 service. I'm not sure how that would have gone over in some of the other ones. But I asked about that, and Josh said, and I quote, don't do that. So I didn't do that. Leah also said don't do that because she didn't want me to go spend money on a minor league jersey. <laughs> she, had, she had different motivations than the pastor. So let's... Uh, Let's dig in a little bit more, and and I have structured this differently. So here's the thing. Trying to be 30,000 foot with the prophets, if we talked about every individual book and all the details, we'd spend three weeks on that, and that defeats the purpose of a four-week big-picture overview. So instead, because there's so much overlap with the prophets, uh, we're just going to approach it a little bit differently, but I think it'll make sense whenever we start digging in with this. So... Let's talk a little bit about authorship and dating and uh, the provenance, the location, what was happening, where was it. Traditionally, both Jewish and Christian scholars have argued that each of the prophetic books was authored by the respective prophets to whom those books were attached. Now, it is possible in some cases that it was someone in a prophet's inner circle who recorded the words of the prophet and compiled them into the book shortly thereafter. That's possible, but either way, the result's the same. And this is what's important. The prophetic writings are the inspired words of those prophets whom God set apart for the task. So at the end of the day, it's not really important if Jeremiah wrote down what he said or if somebody else wrote down what Jeremiah said. The point is Jeremiah said it, and we've got it. And those are the words of those prophets. Now, since the 19th century, it has been common for critical scholars, or maybe you would prefer the language of liberal scholars, to question the traditional authorship of the books. Now, I've asked this before, but I'm going to ask it again. Who has taken, at some point, like a college Bible survey class? Anybody taken a New Testament class? Who took it at a school that wasn't near here and conservative. So, if you had a New Testament class like I had in college, you've heard this before. It is very common in less conservative circles to say none of those people wrote those things. Or they didn't write all of it. The most famous cases are Isaiah and Daniel. Most critical scholars believe that two or even three different individuals wrote Isaiah, and most of them believe that two individuals wrote Daniel because these books accurately record details that happened hundreds of years after the times of those prophets. Now think about that for a second. It must have been written by somebody later, multiple authors, because that stuff actually happened like they said it was going to happen. I would suggest this theory reflects more about the presuppositions of the scholars than it does about the prophets themselves. I mean, they're literally saying, because it happened, it couldn't have been a prophet. 
It must have been somebody else after it happened who backfilled that story. They wrote those books. There is no compelling reason. I'm not saying there aren't reasons that critical scholars don't put forward, but there is no compelling reason to believe anything more than minor editing took place for any of the prophets. And none of that has been demonstrated to include significant changes that affect the meaning of the earlier manuscripts. What do I mean by minor editing? Let's go back to the second or third week, things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, where we have found ancient manuscripts of the book of Isaiah, and it's 98 or 99% the same as what we have in our Hebrew Bibles, and all of them are minor changes of things like articles or something like that. Like it's not actual substance that's changed. We can trust the Scriptures. We can trust our Bibles. And we can trust that the prophets wrote those words or that they are their words that were recorded by their inner circles and that those words actually reflect what they said. And when they predicted the future and it could be verified, that's exactly what happened. They predicted the future and it was verified. Isaiah and Daniel are being punished by liberal scholars because they so clearly got it right. And that's why they say it must be multiple authors. Now the prophetic books were all written between the years 780 and 420 B.C. This covers the period just prior to the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to Assyria in 722 and the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah to Babylon in 586. It also covers the return of Judah to their homeland during the Persian Empire beginning in 538. We'll talk more about that next week. Nearly all the dates related to the prophets, this is so cool, can be verified independently because of the records of when various kings ruled and when certain historical events took place. There's actually very little guesswork we have to do with the prophets. Now sometimes we're doing guesswork like we say it, we know it had to be written during that 25-year period of time. But you think about ancient history and you say something like it had to be during that 25-year period of time, that's like today saying it had to have been in the last 25 minutes. I mean, that's really accurate when we're talking about ancient history. And sometimes we know the exact years because they mention things that we can line up with secular history. There's really no such thing as secular history, but you know, history that's not recorded in the Bible, right? Uh, we know when things are happening. So there's just, we're getting closer to the time of the New Testament, and there is less guesswork with the years the closer we get to the time of the New Testament. The earliest pre-exilic prophets before the exile ministered in either Israel or Judah, the north or the south, before the respective falls of those kingdoms. Pre-exilic prophets who ministered in Israel, the northern kingdom, included Amos and Hosea, both of whom were active in the mid to early 700s. Pre-exilic prophets who ministered in Judah include Isaiah in the mid to early 700s, Micah, the early 700s to the mid 600s, Nahum, early 600s, 
Jeremiah, early 600s to late 500s. Remember, it's going backwards when we're at B.C. Zephaniah, early 600s to late 500s. Habakkuk, right at the turn of the 6th century. And Jonah, in the mid-500s. Little bit of question about Jonah, but only a little bit. We can date, more or less, the lifetime at least, of all those prophets. Even if we can't say that's the decade where that prophet was written, we can look back at the generation and we can call when those prophets were written. The exilic prophets ministered to Judah during her exile. Exilic prophets include Obadiah and Ezekiel, both of whom wrote in the early days of the Babylonian exile in the late 500s, and Daniel, who wrote in the early 500s during the Persian period. So we've got three different prophets that are active during the time of exile. And then we have the post-exilic prophets. They ministered in Judah after the return from Babylon. The post-exilic prophets include Haggai in the early 500s, Zechariah in the early 500s, Joel in the early 400s probably, and Malachi in the early 400s. Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries of Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll mention them again next week. While Joel and Malachi were probably the last books written in the Old Testament. We traditionally think Malachi was last because it's the last one in the Old Testament canon. It might have been Joel that was last, but it's 50-50, so I'm going to call Malachi because that's the last one in my Bible. But, uh, but we know that they were the last two that were written, even if we can't say with certainty which one came last. So any questions? Again, we're just looking at the timeline. What you can see is we've got a period of a little over 300 years where different prophets are active in different times speaking to different groups of Jews about different issues based upon whatever's happening at that time. And it's not like the major prophets come first and then the minor prophets like in the canon of Scripture. You've got major and minor prophets who are active at the same time. And in some cases even knew each other. Not, not many, but there's some cases where they even knew each other. Any questions? All right. You're making it easy tonight. Well, let's talk. A question. Okay. Were there any prophets that didn't end up in our Bible when they put the Bible together originally? There were. The question is, were there any prophets that didn't end up in our Bible? And the answer is, yes, lots of them. Now, what we don't know is if those prophets wrote anything or if their words were recorded. But some of these men who wrote were parts of schools of prophets where, uh, where there's a number of people prophesying and they're kind of the leader of that group or the most prominent of that group. So there are absolutely other prophets that are spoken of as true prophets in the Scripture. But for whatever reason, either they didn't say anything that was recorded or uh, it was recorded and maybe even it was edifying at that time for people who read it, but the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to preserve it for the sake of Scripture. So if, here's the way to think about it. If those prophets who did not make it in with books said true things that were written down and they didn't make it in, they're not Scripture, but they would have been edifying reading. So think about uh, an author whose books you like and, and you know that 
he or she isn't infallible, they're not in Scripture, but they're generally trustworthy. That would have been a similar sort of thing. So there's things that they were maybe reading from these other prophets, but they don't make it into the Scriptures. Next week, in anticipation of a question with the intertestamental period, it's often asked, uh, were there no prophets during the intertestamental period? Well, we don't know. There may have been prophets, but we say there aren't prophets because there's no prophets who said anything that the Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve. Does that make sense? So it doesn't mean that nobody prophesied in any way. What it means is from the standpoint of redemptive history, from Malachi to John the Baptist, there's nothing we need to know. Because if we needed to know it, the Holy Spirit would have preserved it, right? So there's nothing that we need to know. So lots of prophets saying lots of helpful things. And some of them are even mentioned by name in these other prophetic writings or in the books of uh, Kings and, and Chronicles, but we don't have anything by them. It's a great question. Any others? They absolutely would. They absolutely would. So we don't have any books by them. Hananiah, another one that's mentioned. And there's false prophets too, including false prophets who were Jews, who had the ears of kings, but were proven to be false prophets. So let's talk about the types of prophecy. So we're not thinking now about major versus minor. We're talking about categories of prophecy. So I want to give credit to whom credit is due. Uh, I've recommended every week in the Old Testament Andrew Hill and John Walton's survey of the Old Testament. Uh, that's in the recommended resources. And I've taken this chart just directly from their textbook because I think it's very helpful. So it gives four types of prophecies. And uh, each of them evolved over time depending upon whether God's people were living pre-exile or post-exile. So I'm just going to walk through the chart that you see there in the handout. Uh, the first category was uh, prophecies of indictment. So this is a statement of offense, something that's wrong, you know, you've done wrong. And uh, before the exile, the focus was primarily on idolatry, no big surprise. Ritualism, not ritual. We all have rituals, but ritualism, leaning into those rituals too much. Uh, and, and matters of social justice. Okay, I'm going to hit pause for a second. I know we debate that word because of how some people use that word. I don't mean that phrase like those people mean it. <laughs> what I mean is that the prophets talk about social injustice all the time, not just individual injustice, corporate expressions of injustice. If you don't want to call that social justice because of how some people misuse that phrase, that's okay. You don't have to do that. But what we can't do is say there is no such thing as corporate communal expressions of injustice because there are. And the minor prophets call it out all the time. The rich abusing the poor. The haves taking advantage of the have-nots. The rulers oppressing the people. Those are social manifestations of injustice. So I just say all that to anticipate the question, do you mean the same thing that the cultural Marxists mean when they say social injustice? No, of course not. But the prophets talk about social injustice. And they talk about it a lot. 
And then the post-exilic emphasis, uh, the focus on not giving proper honor to the Lord, uh, irreverent worship, if you will. Second category is judgment. Now, this is the punishment that needed to be carried out. So before the exiles, primarily political, projected for the near future, you leaders have done wrong and here's the judgment that's coming. Often that judgment was the exile that they were talking about. Uh, After the exiles, uh, it interpreted recent or current events as divine punishment. Here's actually how this works. Before the exile, they say, get your act together or you're going to be exiled. After the exile, they say, see, I told you so. Get your act together because see what happened last time. So that's kind of the pattern that we see with with the judgments. Uh, There are prophecies of instruction. This is when they are expecting a response. So a general call to return to God by uh, ending wicked conduct, whatever that is, whether it's, again, the idolatry or whether it's some sort of oppression or whether it's uh, whatever. This is the stop doing that. Stop doing that. And then after the exile, it was more specific instructions that addressed specific situations, talking to that king about that specific thing or those people about that specific thing. And if you go back and look, it's much more specific with those post-exilic prophets, whereas beforehand, it's kind of these general calls to repentance and these general calls to... uh, leave behind idolatry and leave behind injustice and return to the Lord. And then finally, it might surprise you to know there are prophecies of encouragement. It's not all doom and gloom. Uh, There's affirmation of future hope or deliverance. Before the exile, uh, they're looking to the future. Uh, there's going to be an an intervening period of judgment, those exiles, but then God is going to restore His people. And we see that, of course, happen after those exiles. But after the exiles, when it's encouragement, they're looking much more to the future. They're looking to that coming Messiah, or they're looking to the new heavens and the new earth, or they're looking to a a further restoration of God's people or something like that. So... There's definitely a sense in which before the exiles, they're thinking about things right around the corner that can be verified they were fulfilled. After the exiles, they're pointing further ahead to things that were either fulfilled in the first century or things that we're waiting to be fulfilled. Any questions just about these categories? That's just to give you a helpful kind of reference tool that you can use if you're looking through the prophets and you're trying to figure out what is Hosea doing here. You can see where it fits in this grid and what's happening. All right. Well then, let's talk about some unifying themes. Again, I think this is probably the best way to approach the prophets. Because if we had four or five bullet points for each prophet, with every one of them, three would say the same thing. Or four would say the same thing. So let's just, again, 30,000 foot view... Here are the things that you're going to see over and over. I'm not saying these are all the themes. Again, some of them have particular themes. But we're talking about the prophets as a whole. The prophets claim that God has spoken through them. Normally with the pattern, thus says the Lord, or as I memorized it growing up, thus saith the Lord. Sometimes though God speaks 
through the prophets through symbolic actions and not just words. Can you think of an example? Mount Carmel, what happened to Mount Carmel? The fire comes down and consumes the... The fire comes down. God was speaking when that happened. You can think of another example? Ezekiel. Eating the, na- eating the nasty sandwich. Tell us about the nasty sandwich, Blake. Made of, well, it wasn't made of dung, but it was cooked on dung. Cooked a sandwich on human waste. It was a, it was a teachable moment <laughs> for the audience. Anybody else? That was Ezekiel. Yeah. Wonders naked. We've got prophets laying on their sides. So there's again, so it's not always words. It's normally words, but sometimes it's very visual and visceral. And it's illustrating uh, in a very visible way Israel's situation. The prophets remind Israel that God chose them to be in a special covenant relationship with Him, which calls for them to be a holy kingdom of priests who are a light to the Gentiles. Every one of those phrases matter. They are reminding Israel that they already have that special covenant. But it is not something that they should hold to themselves and say, look at us, aren't we special? God chose us. They're called to be priests to each other and to be a light to the nations. And they fail on both of those accounts regularly. They don't look out for each other, various forms of social injustice, and they're far more insular than they need to be. They're not thinking about that great multitude that's promised to Abraham. They're thinking about taking care of themselves through much of this time period. And the prophets call them on that. The prophets report regularly that the vast majority of Israel is unfaithful to God's covenant as evidenced by Torah breaking, not obeying the law, hypocritical ritualism, idolatry, and social injustice. Those are the the four recurring themes. You're not right with God and this is how we know it. You don't obey Him. You don't mean those prayers. You're worshiping false gods and you're oppressing each other. That's evidence that you're not being faithful. And uh, sometimes it's just two or three of those. Sometimes it's all four. But those are the recurring kind of big public sins in Israel that uh, a majority gets called out for throughout the prophets. The prophets, though, report that there is a remnant in Israel that remains faithful to God's covenant. And the way that you know that is that they have authentic worship and they obey the Torah. They don't perfectly obey the law, of course. Nobody does that. But they're characterized by faithfulness. They're sincerely worshiping the Lord the way He's called upon them to do it. And their lives are characterized by a faithfulness to the law. There's always a remnant. I know this isn't a sermon, but brothers and sisters, there's always a remnant. God always has a people. God always has a people. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know somebody 
who really loves Jesus, and because of family reasons or geography or because they feel called to, to do something, they're in a church that's not faithful. Do you know people like that? I have friends who love Jesus who are in liberal churches. And sometimes I say, why are you in that church? And they say things like, well, my family's been there for multiple generations and I don't want to lose a witness with my family. Or they say things like, I can't explain it, but God called me to be in that church. And then He's doing something in our Sunday school class or our small group, even though the pastor is Looney Tunes or, or whatever. Well, we know people like that. God always has a people. And this was true even in the moments, the darkest days of Israel. God always had a people, even if we don't know who they were. He never, he never gives up on His promises. There's always some who do not bow the knee to Baal. The prophets warned that Israel as a whole faces judgment because of sin. Sometimes judgment's near, that exile that's right around the corner. Other times it's far in the future, the day of the Lord. We talked about that a lot in several sermons this summer. But here's the point. Judgment's coming as that great prophet, Johnny Cash, <laughs> sings. Sooner or later, God will cut you down if you're, uh, if you're not being faithful. That, that's, the prophets are clear about that. God is going to have the last word. I want you to notice, by the way, the difference between those bullet points. There is always a remnant. That was the last one. But the prophets warned that Israel as a whole faces judgment. Friends, one of the great mysteries that we see throughout the Old Testament is sometimes the prayers of the remnant leads to a sparing of all the people and other times they just reach a stage where there's so much ungodliness that even those who love the Lord are caught up in the judgment. And there's no formula. You can't say, well, why does it happen there and not happen there? This is, this is part of the mysteries of God's sovereignty. We should always pray for revival. We should always be salt and light. Sometimes the way God answers those prayers is by delivering even the unrighteous and staying His hand of judgment a little bit longer. But sometimes God says, enough is enough. And you've been praying, but these people have gone too far as a whole. And so the nation is exiled, or whatever the case might be. We always need to be the faithful remnant. But we need to understand that when we are part of a wicked people as a whole... God is not obligated to spare the whole just because some are faithful. But praise God, sometimes He does. So we always pray for revival. We always pray for renewal, that God would stay His hand of judgment a little bit longer. There might be some practical application for us as we seek to be faithful in an increasingly decadent nation. And even as much of the visible church compromises in all kinds of ways with the world, ways that are obvious and sometimes ways that might not be as obvious. 
Finally, the prophets promise that on the other side of judgment, there will be salvation through a coming Messiah who will initiate a new covenant that will include both Jews and Gentiles, who will rule all nations and who will ultimately renew the entire earth. The prophets are filled with the gospel, telling us that Jesus is coming. We don't know His name, but they tell us so much about who He is that when we fast forward to the New Testament, there are some people who the lights come on. Think about the early, the early parts of the book of Luke. Zechariah, faithfully ministering in the temple. That's him. How does he know that's him? Well, ultimately, the Holy Spirit tells him, but because he was waiting for him, he knew what he was looking for. Some of them knew what they were looking for. And even others who were confused, we see Jesus opening their eyes and then He begins to teach them from the law and the prophets that that's who He was. They should have known it when they saw Him. And the remnant did. Some did. But we have all kinds of information about Jesus. We'll talk about that in just a second. Any questions? All right, now this next, this is good stuff. It's good stuff coming. Let's talk about messianic prophecies. There is a sense, and I mentioned this very early in this study, there is a sense in which all the prophetic books are messianic. The entire Old Testament's messianic. It's ultimately pointing to Jesus. However, that's not what we're talking about. That is true, big picture, but that's not what we're talking about. As you know... There are certain prophecies that are are particularly messianic because they foretell facts about the coming Messiah. Scholars estimate that there are between 300 and 400 messianic prophecies throughout the Old Testament. We're not doing a study of all the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. That'd be fun. That's not what we're doing. But we are going to talk about some of the key messianic prophecies in the prophets. Does that make sense? In this genre of prophecy, what are some of the key messianic prophecies? And I've just listed for you a number of them. Isaiah 7.14 tells us that the Messiah will be born of a virgin in anticipation of a question that may come. You may say, does that word mean virgin because there are some versions of the Bible that just say young woman... And the answer is, that word can mean young woman or virgin. So how do we know that it's a virgin? Because the New Testament says it was a virgin. If we didn't have the New Testament, it'd be open for interpretation. Could mean young woman, but it doesn't mean young woman. It means virgin. The New Testament makes clear that Isaiah 7.14 is speaking of a virgin birth, not just a young woman who's giving birth. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 tells us that the Messiah will be from Galilee and would be a light for God's people. 9, 6, and 7, this is the for unto us passage. The Messiah will be a divine, wise, mighty ruler. Wonderful, counselor. This is where we're at. 
Isaiah 11.1 1 and Isaiah 53.3 tells us that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says the Messiah will perform healing. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, and Malachi 4, 5 and 6, two different prophets, say the Messiah will be preceded by a forerunner, though it doesn't give us details about the forerunner. Isaiah 42, 1 through 7 says the Messiah will be a light to the Gentile nations. Did you pick that up? Isaiah 9 says a light to God's people, speaking of Jews. Isaiah 42, a light to the nations, speaking of Gentiles. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, my favorite passage in all of Scripture. The Messiah will suffer and die for the sins of the people, yet will somehow also live to see the fruit of His suffering and death and intercede for the people. Our Jewish friends say that's talking about Israel. But it talks about a servant dying on behalf of the people. And even though that servant is dead, he intercedes for the people. How do do dead people intercede? This is talking about Jesus. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the Messiah will preach good news to the poor and the captives. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and Ezekiel 36, 22 through 32, again, two different prophets tell us the Messiah will bring about a new covenant and give us all kinds of details about that new covenant. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, the Messiah will be the Son of Man. Daniel 9, 24 through 27, this is why the liberals don't like Daniel, the Messiah will come 490 years after the end of the Babylonian exile. That's pretty specific, isn't it? Our liberal friends say, ah, somebody wrote that later. Okay. Hosea 11.1, the Messiah will be called out of Egypt. Where does Jesus go when the persecution from Herod the Great comes? They go to Egypt. Matthew says, I've called him out of Egypt, quoting Hosea. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. You know who knew that? Herod the Great which is why he gets nervous when those magi show up. And then they arrive when Jesus was about two. Remember that when you're putting out your nativity scenes this year. (laughs) Zechariah, nothing gets one of my daughters more agitated than seeing wise men in a nativity scene. And we have to say, don't be that person. It's okay. It's okay. Zechariah 9.9, the Messiah will enter Jerusalem on a donkey. That's pretty specific. Zechariah 11, 12, and 13, the Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Some of this is very specific to Jesus' life, isn't it? So these are just the examples that I could come up with in like 30 minutes. We probably could have had another 15 just from the prophets. And this isn't counting the scads of prophecies from the Psalms. From David, prophecies all the way back to Moses. It's remarkable how much the Old Testament tells us about Jesus. By the time, maybe not by the time the child was born, because after all he's a baby, but certainly 
by the time Jesus dies, how could anyone who knew the Old Testament not say, that's him? We knew everything about him except his name. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. It's remarkable how much the Old Testament tells us about Jesus. I'll take questions in a second, but I have some recommended resources as always. I mentioned last week, still recommending the same general textbooks, but I mentioned last week that Gospel Coalition commentary on the Bible, which is online and free, so I have a couple of links there to the article on the major prophets, which is pretty good. Uh, the article on the minor prophets is fantastic. You can read it in about 15 or 20 minutes. And so, uh, again, uh, I'll try to link to those whenever they're applicable to what we're talking about. So questions about these messianic prophecies or just anything else that you want to talk about here in our next two or three minutes before we close? The, yes, sir. The messianic prophecies. Isaiah dominates. Is that because in 20 or 30 minutes you thought mostly of Isaiah? or It's because there's more in Isaiah. Isaiah and the Psalms, again, Psalms aren't a prophetic writing, so we're not talking about them this week. I would guess close to 50% of the best-known Messianic prophecies come from either Isaiah or from the Psalms. And the ones from Isaiah are even more familiar than the ones in the Psalms. So let me say this. Interestingly, the New Testament quotes the Psalm prophecies more frequently. Now, all the Isaiah ones get quoted. But like the Psalms, they're constantly quoted in the New Testament. Just period, the Psalms are constantly quoted in the New Testament. That includes the prophecies. But the Isaiah ones are especially familiar to us because so much well-known Christian music, I'm trying to think of the right term, it's classical, but it's not all like the genre of classical music, though some of it is. There's so, there's so much music that we identify with Jesus that comes from Isaiah. Not least of which, uh, the one that I played it singing a minute ago with the, the Hallelujah Chorus and, and whatnot. So it's very familiar. Very familiar. So there's a lot of it with Isaiah. So that's not just me. That's pulling it out with what's there. Others? Yes, ma'am. Because it's, okay, so why, if the Psalms have so much prophecy, why aren't they considered prophetic writings? So we're just speaking in terms of the different genres, and all of these books have kind of an umbrella genre that generally characterizes them, but they might have aspects of the other genres. So that's what's happening there. So in the same way that, uh, that some of these prophets have poetry, Sometimes the way that they're prophesying, it's structured as a poem, but it's in the context of prophecy. It's the opposite with the Psalms. There are individual Psalms that are prophetic or that have lines that are prophetic, but it's in the general context of them being praises. Does that make sense? So that's just why we do it. But everybody would admit that whenever we talk about the genres, it's a helpful way to characterize the Old Testament, but we always need to remember that there's a lot of overlap with, with different books. And, and even within genres, you find uh, hints of other genres and examples of other genres within them. 
think we've got time for one more if you've got one. Yes? Is there theological significance to the fact that there are 12 minor prophets? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I've not thought about that before. Have you read something that would cause you to ask that question, or are you just thinking is that's quite a coincidence that there's twelve of them and twelve tribes of Israel and twelve? I mean, I could see why. I've just I've never read or heard anybody argue that, but it could be. Yeah, it's off the top of the head. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe it's a good reminder at least that uh, whenever we see the number twelve, we should always stop and ask even if every once in a while it happens to be a coincidence. But I don't know. There might be. Blake, I think your homework is to go and investigate that and report back to us next week the, uh, the, the significance of that. So, that's right. That's right. Make sure you use Turabian. I'll be checking all the footnotes closely. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the prophets, and we thank you for the way that they forth tell your truth so faithfully, and we rejoice at the way that they foretell uh, what's to come. We thank you, Father, that uh, all your promises find their yes and amen in Jesus, and we're grateful that He is our King and Savior. Be with us throughout this week in all that we do, and uh, we look forward to being back next week uh, by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.